Gossok takes off in like a searching flight and he finds the running he sees the running quail before we do he's the reason we know they're running and he got really good at this and he would pitch up and he'd go maybe 30 50 feet and kind of like flare his wings like a kestrel and kind of hover there and those quail stop running they pin and so i'm screaming free which is my release word for trigger and he runs in and he flushes the covey so a covey just erupts under a hovering goshawk and i got mike mcdermott right next to me and uh hash brown folds his wings and just smacks one right out of the air like right over a verbal release after a pointed defined and uh the person who had got me into quail hawking the person who had taught me quail hawking and got me into vislas is right there with me for the first time Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falcon Retold Podcast. And have to start off like I always do and give a quick shout out to the people who support our production, being Bobby Yaga Crafts out of Poland. If you all are ever in the market for any new equipment for your hunting partner, be it anklets or any kind of hybrid jesses or anything like that, definitely hit him up. His contact information is on our website at falconretold.com, and you can also hit him up at Bobby Yagagashawk on Instagram. He makes some great stuff, and I know you've heard me preach about it many, many times, but it's well worth the time and the money to check it out if you haven't yet. And also, if you're in the market for a potential new hunting partner for next season, think about hitting up Seth Roy from North Mountain Goshawks. And especially if you might be in the market for a parent rear goshawk or, you know, maybe even an imprint. It's definitely worth checking him out. He produces some great game hawks, and I've seen some of them fly in person, and, and they do great. So I'm pretty sure if you hit him up and get your name on the list for next upcoming breeding season, you won't be disappointed. He produces some great birds, and if you uh, hit him up, just tell him we sent you, and I'm pretty sure you'll uh, have a good time next season. So head to NorthMountainGoshawks.com, fill out that information form, or just hit him up on Facebook. Okay, well, I hope that you all have enjoyed the starts to our two new series featuring dachshunds and falconry and then some falconry in Canada as well. Those series will both be kind of ongoing for a little while with some other individual episodes mixed in here and there. But our dachshund series is going to continue with another guest who... Yes, uh, has been requested quite often here on the podcast, and once again, it's not that we uh, haven't heard the requests and whatnot, but this was another guest who has also been a friend of mine for several years now, and we uh, keep in touch every so often and see how each other are doing every so often, but with as much as, as he and I have been traveling over the years this was another episode that I absolutely refused to do remotely or really in any other kind of circumstance other than face-to-face and in person because I knew that we would have a lot of catching up to do. And yeah, I mean, that's exactly pretty much uh, <laughs> how it ended up. We, we recorded for almost two hours and caught up quite extensively and talked about a whole bunch of different stuff, including quail hawking and dachshunds and you know all kinds of different breeds and different aspects about dogs and and things and like I said there's there's so much stuff that we covered in this episode but rather than talk too much about it once again just figured I go ahead and jump right in here to this conversation that I had with Tyler Sladen that occurred 
while we were both at uh, Terrier Trials over the weekend of my birthday in Kentucky. So anyway, I hope you all enjoy it. I know it's probably been a long-awaited thing for some of you listening, but uh, hey, patience is a virtue and uh, good things come to those who uh, wait patiently. So (laughs) anyway, hope you all enjoy and here we go. Here's Tyler Sladen. Yeah, I mean, I expected, as I was telling you earlier, just to be completely annihilated and um, barely have the energy to do this. But um, I'm happy that's not the case. <laughs> you didn't miss much. He showed up, showed up at a reasonable time this morning. I mean, we got started this morning at like seven sharp. So for this trial, that's just not not the case. Um, <laughs> it's usually like Mr. Mills rolls in at nine with a donut and coffee and. Tells a story till nine thirty, and then they're like, "Oh no, it's hot." <laughs> yeah, I um, I don't know. Like, this has been a, a cool experience. I'm glad that um, I'm glad that I called you the other day when I did, and um, this all worked out. And um, of course, it's another one of the situations where I've had to literally demolish myself to like make it happen. Yeah, but there's but, still the degree of you made it happen, but you're like, uh. When do you come out this way? And I was like, well, actually, never, <laughs> never, but I will be there next weekend, yeah. oddly enough. So, yeah. yeah, no. So, I mean, it's, um, you know, people ask me a lot, um, as I'm sure you can imagine. I mean, I've been asked a lot if we're ever going to like have you on and stuff. And what I always tell people is I've known the dude for like eight years or whatever, and he and I are both mobile enough that there's no way I'm going to do this remotely with him. Like, I'm going to wait until that time that we actually, you know, are in person together. Yeah, that's beyond fair. It's taken a long time, but I'm glad it's finally worked out at least. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm just glad I got more than two hours of sleep last night. That's all I I know. Yeah, I I think I was close. I think I got like three and a half, but I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was expecting to... I didn't know if my buddies were going to go out of their way to... um, do anything extra or force anything down me last oh, night. Oh yeah. You know, but uh you know, I'm uh, I know you don't really partake in a lot of that stuff anymore for the most part. But no. Uh, yeah, I've drank once in seven years and it was at a funeral. So like that's a very extenuating circumstance. But yeah, last night, like I've driven all the way across the country. I don't get to coon hunt like I used to and they were like, We're going coon hunting, you coming? I was like, Yeah. We were coon hunting last night till three in the rain. So and I I didn't mind. They were like, I'm sorry, it's awful. And I'm like, You don't understand. Like, I love this. I drove here for this. Yeah. So it was it was still fun. No, that's cool. Yeah. So I mean you uh you ended the hunt about maybe thirty minutes or so ish after I finally got to bed last night i was falling asleep in the uber on the 10 minute drive back from the <laughs> from the bar <laughs> to uh to um my uh, warwick reps um you know apartment or whatever and i just crashed on her couch for like four hours last night and then drove back the you know three hour drive or whatever it is from nashville up here this morning and so like i said i'm just between the heat yesterday and everything else that went on and um the fact that i only had two hours of sleep the night before that. And you know how it goes, man. You're a, you're a road warrior too. Yeah. I, yeah. Last night, normally I'm pretty good about my, like at least my bedtime routine. But last night I, I crawled up in my tent, didn't even get in my sleeping bag and fell asleep with my shoes on. I was done. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, sounds about right. And, you know, I've worked, as you know, I've also worked night shift for the better part of the last decade, too. And, like, I, you know, there is no such thing in my world as a, a sleep schedule or a circadian rhythm. It doesn't exist for me anyway. So, at least it's a little bit easier just for me to stay permanently wrecked. Yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> It's consistent. Yeah. It's yeah. consistently chaos. Yeah. I mean, consistently inconsistent. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a great way to live. It, yeah, it's not bad. Uh, yeah, my my rhythm's definitely a lot better in the winter. I mean, you're forced. It's dark at five. Like, yeah, that means you get everything done by five and you go to bed. But like the summer when it's dark at ten, you're like, whew. <laughs> I I can't physically lay down when it's light out. I just don't do it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, how, I mean, it's been a while since we've, gosh, I mean, it really has been probably what, seven or eight years or something since we've actually seen each other in person. I mean, um, it's been probably at least what, 2016, 2017, something like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know when the last time would have been or even where. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I don't think that I had seen you after you moved. I don't think it, I don't think I've seen you since you moved. Yeah, so I left Missouri 2017. Yeah, so had to have been sometime in there. Yeah, I remember stopping by your house one time. I don't remember what it was for. It was but to pick up the Harris. Yeah, it was pick. Oh yeah, it was yeah. Azula. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that was it was yeah, it was like January 2017. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, no, not that had to have been. Um, no, that would have been December of 2016. Yeah, no, that was it. Yeah, yeah. so because we were already. We were already squirrel hawking over yeah. terriers and dachshunds mm-hmm. by January. Yeah, and you had just lost uh, Greedo. Yeah, because yeah. Greedo died in mm-hmm. December. Yep, got a, got electrocuted or something, if I remember right. Yeah, a covey of quail put in. Yeah. Uh, McDermott's dog went on point. He flew up to a pole for a reflush, and like he noticed the dog. He turned to look at the dog on point. And head touched the top wire. It was like a slight rain and wet hawk with grounded. So yeah, that was the end for that bird, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Mike uh-huh. said some profound advice then because I was a lot more wet behind the ears in falconry than Mike said. Well, if you never let them go, every bird you fly in falconry will die at some point. And I was like, that's heavy and like rough, but it's true. It's true. The only happy ending is letting a bird go. Yeah. Period. Well, and, and even still, that bird's still gonna die. Yeah. yeah, but you're not. You don't have to bear witness. Right. To exactly. It, so. But you know, it's inevitably gonna happen. At inevitably, some point. Yeah. but like. Yeah. I don't, the last thing you know of that bird is I cut it loose. Yeah, yeah. We had a great time. I cut it loose. It's out of my my hands. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like if it goes to your buddy to a breeding project and dies in a breeding project, you still know the ending. Sure. Yeah. It truly is like the only happy ending. Like even recently, Miss Francie's Harris Hog died at like 33 years old. The bird's older than me. And even still, that's hard. That's, that's. That's a hard, I mean, you, you got 33 years to look back on, but still that's not a, that's not a happy ending. No, no. Well, and it's like when I was talking to uh, like Ronnie Moore in the, in the UK, I mean, he had that same golden eagle for like 28 years. And like, I, I, I just asked him, I was like, how, like, how did, <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't, I hadn't known of, hadn't known of anyone really that had flown a bird for that long and um you know actually been flying it that been able to keep one alive of any species for that long yeah i mean it's i think the harder question there is how do you how do you pick up the pieces after yeah yeah like that's a hard horse to get back on top of like look at 
Michael Clark and Betty. Like I remember watching him trap that bird online in like what oh eight or oh nine, and he's still flying her. Like that's gonna be a hard ending one day. Yeah, that's- yeah. No, you're right, and I mean they they say over and over again. I mean just you know to kind of uh, condition yourself to not get attached at all to like your birds and things like that. But, you know, when something is in or part of your life for that long, it's, it's really almost kind of impossible, at least not a little, just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's one of those things you can say till you're blue in the face, but doing it's a whole different, whole different story. Yeah. And it's kind of cool to at least talk about it on a falconry podcast for one. I've only ever done like gun dog podcasts. So like <laughs> it's always surface level falconry questions, but these are like the the deeper falconry questions that no one's gonna ever ask on a gun dog podcast. They're not gonna ask this on a, a Quail Forever podcast. So sure. No, and that's that's why I just like setting my stuff up like, you know, having conversations, you know, because this is the kind of stuff that falconers sit and have a beer and talk about you know what i mean yeah and you know these are the things that you know i mean there's there's all kinds of like books and there's all kinds of um you know manuals and to do you know um, information out there on how to go about uh you know working with birds and things like that but these conversations to me are, you know, and finding out kind of what has made people the way they are and stuff, especially in the context of the sport is really what I enjoy, you know? No, yeah. same here. And they're definitely heavier. Like to me, online falconry and books, that's low impact on my personal falconry. Like yeah. online falconry honestly probably has more of an influence on most people's falconry than a lot of books. Like books can be inspirational, but deep conversations with other falconers at 3 a.m. in a hotel lobby at anapha meet heavier you know or like a conversation with your mentor like walking a field heavier you know and mm. seeing you can read about trading a bird off a hundred times but seeing five people do it differently you're like you're gonna pick out from that one person you're like no, that's how I want to do it. You yeah, know, like that that looked right. That was fluid. Right, and you're and you'll see three or four other ways that you definitely don't want to do. Yeah, it. and that's that's yeah. I was like, <laughs> I was sidestepping that. You're, you're you're gonna see you're gonna see like what one or two. You're like, that ain't it. That is not the way. <laughs> and then you'll see one, and you're like, man, that dude's a smooth operator. Yeah, yeah, and then you know. That what's funny about that too, though, is then you'll see the same dude do it the way you didn't want to do it at some point too. <laughs> Sometimes just because we all we all have those moments that even as refined as we yeah, can get you'll, things, yeah, yes. you'll see it with falconry, you'll see it with dog handling. The the best dog handler in the world that'll that trains people on not to be emotional in your training, you'll it's inevitable. You'll see him get emotional. Uh one of the most well respected terrier guys this weekend. I watched him train a little emotionally this weekend and I've never seen that out of him. I've known him like seven plus years, so it happens. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we're human. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And, um, you know, especially with dogs, I mean, you know, they become such a big part of your life, even more so than these birds, you know, and, and, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I mean, like you have a spouse, for example, like mine and, and stuff, you know, who couldn't give two shits less about, you know, the birds. But like if something were to happen to one of these wieners out in the field and I came home, it would be really hard for me 
to yeah. be able no, to I, come home. <laughs> you know, you know how it goes, man. I, and then, like, I always like to ask people, like, especially like passionate falconers, the people that make falconry who they are, which is it's it's a small percent, but those percent really stick out. But like, ask them, like, if you had to get rid of birds or dogs, what are you getting rid of? And I, nine out of ten times, they're gonna say they're gonna get rid of the birds yep, first. Yep. I yeah. love my birds. I love every bird I've ever flown, but. I love my dogs a lot more. Mm-hmm. Like, and my dogs were there for the bad birds, and my dogs were there for the good birds. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's so funny you bring that up because you know, I mean, I've I've mentioned it briefly before on here and stuff, but like, I've had that same conversation with at least probably I don't know a handful of mutual people that we both know. I mean, I had the same conversation with Domsky. I've had the same conversation with like Redig. I've had you know, I mean, I've had like you know the same conversation with a lot of other friends and you know and it's funny because when you and some of them you might ask at first there's hesitation but i think you're absolutely right they're still going to end up well yeah you gotta hesitate you're like (laughs) i mean that's it's like asking a soccer player to give up soccer or a bass fisherman to give up fishing um but even on like a a more deep-rooted scale um there's there's a lot of people I've met in the dog world, like Jerry Coulter, the owner of Northwoods Bird Dogs. He was a falconer, but now he's an incredible and well respected. He just he said I had too many irons in the fire, and he he went full force on dogs, and his he's left his mark on the breeds he works with. But like some people do give up the birds for dogs. It does happen. Yeah, and I think that unfortunately, almost every falconer to some degree or another always has that crossroads where they kind of have to make a choice yeah and at least if not giving up both like there's something's got to give somewhere you know and uh if someone isn't dedicating everything to one thing but they're doing multiple things and inevitably one or the other has to suffer a little bit yeah i mean yeah you'll even see that when people are full force in falconry and they they're flying three birds. Mm, yeah. One bird is better than the other two. For sure. And I learned that about myself a while ago that I am a I'm a one bird band. I I fly yeah. one bird really well and I fly two birds half ass and that's just not me. Yeah. However, I've got a I've got a kennel full of dogs now and I wouldn't you, you couldn't make me get rid of five and I've got over 12, so you went all the way into the deep end, you know, with the dogs, you know, and uh, I mean, even whenever we first started to kind of get to know each other, I mean, and you know, I, if I remember correctly, I mean, we we both got into falconry really close to the same time. I mean, you knew about it way before I did. And yeah. I think it's something that you knew that you wanted to do way before I did. But like, as far as the actually starting into it, I mean, we've both been in it like relatively the same amount of years, give or take a year or two, maybe. Yeah. And it's falconry like a lot of things especially to anybody with adhd <laughs> when you get into it everything's shiny you yeah, want to yeah. put your hands on everything it's mm. all shiny i want to fly an Apamato. i want to fly a prairie falcon i want to fly a peregrine and Dude, like you fly a yeah. bunch of stuff and then once you it's hard to figure out like what's the stuff that's for mm. you and once i figured out that like goshawks on upland birds is my thing i just i dove in head first 
into a three foot pool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you remember some of the conversations that we used to have about that very thing. I mean, we both kind of did that same thing. We tried a bunch of different crap within our first like year or two of getting our general and things. And like, you know, I mean, I remember telling you how much I like long wings and this, that, and the other, you know, tried dabbling in that. I know you tried, you know, kind of doing the same thing too. You kind of went through that enamorment with one species within inevitably landed on a different one. And I mean, if you had a little bit of a retrospective or introspective, I guess I should say question here, but I know I have this conversation with myself often, but what do you, I mean, how do you feel about your early years? I mean, if you had things to do over again in that way, like, would you have gone back and been able to tell yourself like, dude, you should just settle on this and focus on this and instead of like doing all that stuff or do you wish you could have done anything over? See, that's hard because like, first of all, 20-year-old me would never listen to 31-year-old me. <laughs> like, So like, yeah. And that's that was a part of being a 20-year-old me. Mm-hmm. But I also think that had I had I focused... I wouldn't have been the falconer I am today. I wouldn't have been the dog handler I am today. And I wouldn't have scratched those itches that would have left me curious. They would have left me awake at night wondering, well, what if I had done this? Or what yeah. if I had done that? Looking back on my early days in falconry, I know what would have worked well and I would have done damn good at it. Mm-hmm. But I know that because of what I went through. Yeah. And and I know that going forward. So it's that's really hard. Um, but... I can I can comfortably say I'm glad I took the path I did. Maybe like, there's a few things probably I would have deleted, <laughs> but overall I'm pretty glad with the path I took. I I learned with a lot of hand-me-down birds. I learned with a lot of hand-me-down dogs, and I learned real quick that a fresh-started dog and a fresh-started bird are a hell of a lot easier, especially when it's like the round peg for the round hole. A lot of falconers and a lot of dog people too are new to dog people. They love that like hexagonal peg through a triangle and they, they I mean, they'll beat it with a hammer for years. And love the challenge. They, I yeah, love I, the challenge. I like the challenge. <laughs> and like, don't get me wrong. There's people that truly love the challenge and excel at the challenge, mm-hmm. but that is not the general consensus. No, no, no. I'm, I mean, when you look at Lauren flying problem rehab birds and doing incredibly well with them, I mean, that's someone that enjoys the challenge, but that's someone that like thrives in that challenge. So that ain't me. I don't like, I, I love a challenge, but I love a different kind of challenge, I guess. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. And there's, I, and I have to probably tend to agree with you and, and say that I kind of came to the general consensus as well. There's not really much that I feel like I could go back and change because, you know, I mean, I, I learned a lot of really good and, and also hard lessons, especially in the first, that, that big middle chunk, you know, not like we've both had illustriously long falconry careers thus far by any stretch, but I mean, I feel like there's about three to four years right in between the beginning and now that were really important. <laughs> and, no, absolutely. And, yeah. And, and without those, yeah. Mm. Yeah. The, the meat and vegetables in that sandwich were those are important years. <laughs> Very much so. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like then that, yeah, I mean, it, it I, I, I think that, um, we probably are, are thinking alike in that, in that regard then it's just, like I said, man, it's, 
there's there's definitely things that I would have deleted too. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, I mean, there's just there's so many yeah, I mean, the the failing with some of those other things that I felt like I needed that to uh, scratch that itch with, you know? Yeah. And and just discovering that okay, yeah, that really's not going to work that way. You know, I mean, you're right. I wouldn't have been I mean and and I mean, I discovered squirrel hawking recently even after you know, like eight years, you yeah. know, discovered how that, how fun that is. Like just now, you know, that's like my only regret is that some of the things that were more practical and I should have been doing sooner. I wish I would have done sooner. Well, it's like anyone that's lived around the country or lived in multiple places. Like say you grew up your whole life next to Mount Rushmore. You probably don't go see route Mount Rushmore. You probably saw it one time and you're like, whatever. Or sometimes you don't ever go. Mm-hmm. Then when you move to like California, you're like, I want to take my kids to see Mount Rushmore. It's like <laughs> I used to live there. I didn't go. Yeah. Um, so like I, I recently, I, I went to the caverns in Missouri for the first time when I was living in New Mexico. Like why, why didn't I go when I lived there? I don't know. So that squirrel hawking was always there for you, but yeah. now you're like, Oh <laughs> yeah. 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 I should be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I hadn't discovered Mount Rushmore way earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I I totally agree. Yeah. And and like it's kind of funny too, because uh when I was in Cape Town recently, they uh one of the guys there, like they took me to go to go and see like this uh nature preserve or one of these other places there or game preserves or whatever. And um the one guy is just like, Yeah, I mean I've lived here my whole life. I haven't even seen this yet. So have fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's uh that's funny. We both went to South Africa for the first yeah, time yeah, in yeah, the yeah. last year. Yeah. I was up in Limpopo and yeah. there was I mean Kruger National Park is only like a couple hours, but I did learn that a couple hours in South Africa is not a couple hours in no United States no. at all. No. Those no. highways are yeah different um <laughs> well, did, did you see any of the fun um hijacking area signs like the some of those warning signs that were yeah. scattered around yeah did you go through some of those and yeah, yeah. i mean we were <laughs> we were with phs the whole time and sure yeah i did learn that like i guess locals just don't mess with phs there it's, it's kind of probably like messing with a cattle farmer in texas like you, you want to turn the whole state on you and go ahead mm-hmm. but um yeah yeah, South Africa was an experience. Um, I definitely want to go back. I didn't get to see any of the falconry there, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. um, it did like open a whole new world for me. It was like, I mean, it was like playing a new generation of Pokemon. Like, like, <laughs> like you're like, oh my god! Like everywhere I looked, like there's a new bug, there's a new bird, mm-hmm. there's a new plant. I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, don't have good cell phone service. I'm like, I'm like, what is that? Yeah, I haven't I haven't downloaded this Pokemon Go update yet. Oh, the hell, man! Oh, I haven't, haven't I haven't been to played this gym since yet. the the super <laughs> summer of Pokemon Go. But but anyone that grew up with Pokemon probably understands like the metaphor there. It's. <laughs> It's everything is so different. There's nothing in common. The, the only things I found in common was like a little bit of the weather for me, like New Mexico to South Africa wasn't didn't feel any. It was dry, arid and some of the grass species like there was purple three on and stuff. I was like, wow, it's the same exact grass. Yeah. That's cool. And the, one of the pH is like, why do you know that? And I'm like, man, leave me alone. Like, <laughs> grass, is, grass is important if you want to learn quail. So. That's funny. Well, and it sounds like the area that you went to was kind of polar opposite from where I was at because like the Western Cape is a lot more um, schizophrenic with the weather and it rains like a crap ton there. And like they took me up uh, kind of close to like on the top of another um, higher elevation area and they were like, yeah, um, 
interesting fact, like there's more um, different species of vegetation on the side of this hill that we're on right now or the side of this like mountain that we're on or whatever than like the whole blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, uh, I probably won't be able to retain a lot of what you're telling me, but that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, where I was in South Africa, I mean, it looked like Southern New Mexico, West Texas. It was mm. dry, arid. Everything was sharp. Mm. And I was like, it's only missing the rattlesnakes like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was wild because you're, you're just, there's so many ungulates. There's, I mean, you're everywhere you look, there's kudu and sable. And yeah, I was like, we have deer and elk and like pronghorn. That's, that's yeah, that's all we got. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, it sounds like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's such a, uh, a different contrast in, I mean, it's, it's, it is a large continent so i'm <laughs> I, yeah. you know i mean i guess it's uh it's reasonable to understand why it's so different in certain areas obviously but uh <laughs> but yeah i mean i was um i i and and we had the conversation a little bit ago too about just the the poverty level there and stuff and that was jarring yeah. um i thought i knew poverty seeing like part like bad parts of new mexico and west virginia no don't yeah. hold a candle to like the bad parts of yeah. South Africa. Don't get me wrong, like the country's beautiful and the people are great, but oh, like, yeah, yeah. Poverty isn't a reflection of how the country is. Poverty's like it's just a very real thing there. Yeah. And um I always thought I mean what I found interesting though was the amount of shanty towns that they have with like, you know, the the tin roofing and siding and stuff, but there's a satellite dish on every single one of them. Or a generator. Yeah, that too. Yeah. And the the rolling blackout <laughs> thing, I was like, this yeah. is the power, power, sh load shedding, load shedding, load shedding. Load shedding. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you had to like look up the schedule mm -hmm. and change it every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like we take things like that very much for granted here. Yeah. If, if people in the U.S., could you imagine just the riots that would happen if like people in the U.S. were told, look, your power is going to go out for two hours every single day for at least, I don't know, these times. Well, it wasn't times even just like, two hours. It was like two hours. Well, it, it varied. Like some 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 days were like two to four. Other days were like two. And it was weird how they did it. But yeah, but there were some days where the power went out like three times in a day yeah. for two hours at a time. I'm mm -hmm. like, man, Americans would lose their mind <laughs> if they didn't have AC in Central Texas mm -hmm. at noon on a Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would be not good. No, they wouldn't sit very well. It also wouldn't sit very well, too, if people had to, like, you know, be resigned to the fact that, like, okay, there's this uh, merchandise caravan with these couple of trucks carrying, like, Samsung TVs and stuff, and we should probably not go by this particular overpass at a certain time because there's definitely going to be some people there waiting to ambush these trucks and, <laughs> and like oh the other one that was crazy was the money trucks oh yeah yeah they like straight up blow up mm -hmm. like atm trucks i was yeah. like yeah we definitely don't have roadside bombing no. in the united states no so yeah i mean i think that you know i'm very much uh was surprised like you were you know i was just i i was very it was very um you know uh, perspective altering and, and pretty humbling too you know I, yeah, that it's exactly the word humbling and like mm -hmm. it doesn't change my opinion of the place like i will be back there next year and i'll be back I, there next year for longer than i was this year mm -hmm. um but it's just i guess people 
people don't understand it until they see it. And, but the same thing with the sheer size of that country, that continent. Yeah. yeah. I've driven coast to coast of the United States many times and it is not as not like that country. No. No, not at all. And uh yeah, I mean I, I don't know how I'm gonna swing it. I mean, I was invited to Zimbabwe next year and um, you know, a couple of the other guys from the other provinces and stuff have invited me to go. I, I don't know how I'm gonna be able to pull it off or afford it, but I, I I'm like you, man. I I would love to go back. Yeah, and I'd love to go back while I'm young. I don't mm-hmm. wanna go back when I'm Yeah. And like I'm like I, I same thing Botswana and Zimbabwe I was invited mm-hmm. to, but like I wanna see a lot more of South Africa. Like yeah. it's like it's like a whole new world for me. I like let me <laughs> let me explore this new map, this this new DLC pack for me. Like, yeah. I really wanna I wanna see this too. Um, I did get to like peak. So where we were in Limpopo was like right on the river. So like we could see into Botswana, and that was cool. We were hunting spurfowl, and I could hear hippos grunting. I saw a Nile River monitor. Like I was like, this is so cool. Like <laughs> everywhere I look is so many things. Um, yeah. There was lantern falcons and cape vultures and mm. yeah the, the spur fowl and the Franklin and the guineas and I got to see some crested guineas. I was, I was like I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, no, and that's why you know whenever I was talking to those guys and they were like, yeah, I mean we usually hunt this. And I was asking you know like what different species they would hunt with this particular species or whatever and they were telling me what what birds and i was just like i'm gonna have to look all these damn things up i have no idea what the hell you're talking about but (laughs) it's like i'm not familiar with most of those species over there i've become a little bit more acquainted with them but that's like once again though that's why i enjoy doing that stuff i you know i don't know some people just don't like traveling i don't understand it (laughs) no like my parents don't leave like for my dad to go like 15 minutes out of his town that he lives in is like a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, I, I feel you. And my wife doesn't really like to travel very much either, which is why I usually go solo on most of this stuff. But but yeah, I don't know. Some people, I just don't, I don't get it, man. I, there's, it's a I'm big very world. grateful to have a significant other that likes to travel and has a flexible work schedule lane. I mean, she tattoos, she makes her own schedule, but she loves to travel and she travels well and like zero complaints, like just very down for flying by the seam of her pants. And like, I never thought I'd find that, you know, and now that I have it, I'm like, wow, I've been, I mean, it doesn't work for everybody, but for like for me to finally have it, I'm, I'm enjoying it and I'm not going to take that for granted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, like I said, it, it, provides some challenges in one regard, but in the other, and I mean, I mean, I feel fortunate too, that, that I also, you know, have a wife that doesn't care that I'm gone so much also, you know, like after, although I joke with people, you know, after like 17, 18 years, I think she enjoys her time away from me. anyway. There's but. nothing wrong with that though, either. <laughs> like a lot of, some people are like jarred at that idea and like different things work for different people. And like, yeah. if someone's significant other likes their alone time, like, it's working for him, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I love traveling with my significant other and she loves her alone time. She likes to just draw and read and just kind of be alone. And I think that's good for everybody. Like I drove 22 hours here by myself and I enjoyed it. I got mm-hmm. to call friends around the country, check in on them. I made a last minute stop, stopped at a buddy's house. Like, it was an hour out of the way, but whatever. I'm driving cross country. Who cares? I'm not in a rush. And I don't know. I, I very much enjoy like just staring at the windshield and 
being able to control like when you're in a car by yourself for that long you truly control your atmosphere for do i want to call someone do i want to put on a book do i want to listen to music do i want to just stare into the void in complete solitude who cares you can and like i don't know i've learned to love it it's freedom it for me yeah absolutely yeah yeah yeah. no i feel you and that's the main reason why i continue to do it as much as i do also because i mean i just i and it's a lot easier to keep going with it once you're used to it instead of trying to go back to the altar and don't get me wrong if if a buddy called me up and was like yo i'm hopping the truck and we're gonna go and i'm like hell yeah (laughs) but i'm not gonna like cry and drag my heels because i gotta go alone (laughs) whatever yeah yeah i mean sometimes it's worth paying all the expenses you know yeah (laughs) but no well yeah yeah you travel with the wrong person once and you're like my evaluation process for a co-pilot has changed like i'm not yes like people that wait until you're an hour after you just got gas to let you know that they got to go to the bathroom like that's that's a quick way to get vetoed off my island like yeah. No, the gay, it was gas, food, and bathroom all in one stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I have a very, um, quirky in some regards, um, personality and, and I have a lot of triggers, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the triggers, they get more amplified the more time that you spend by yourself, too. Like, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 that translates to falconry, like a bird that's mm-hmm. used to flying alone with the same dog name, Skeeter, is like, if he's done it for five years, he's not going to really, he's not going to like a new dog that does different things. Mm-hmm. Very much so. But, well, I mean, I guess, you know, like I said, I mean, we could probably sit here and, and banner and catch up like for the rest of the day. But I want to kind of talk a little bit about kind of what the catalyst for making that phone conversation happen and also, you know, just why we're kind of, here a little bit in that um i know i've been trying to well of course people are going to probably hear this after the fact and the start of this series and stuff but like uh, you know i mean casey and i ever it had been trying to talk about kind of organizing you know a series that it's dedicated to people, you know, for, you know, that, that run dachshunds and use dachshunds in their falconry and stuff. And I know it's not, you know, because of where you're at now and everything, I know that that's not so much your wheelhouse now, but it used to be a, a huge part of your wheelhouse. Yeah, it was, it wasn't just my falconry, it was my work too. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, I miss, I miss the little things. Um, I appreciate them. I have a great amount of respect for them, but I'm also fair enough in my assessment of what I'm doing that like dachshunds don't fit anymore for what I'm doing. And I learned that through a few hard lessons, but it's, it's nice to just admire it from afar now. And I love seeing their popularity grow. Um, and it, I mean, it all goes back to Teddy. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about leaving your mark on something. Teddy left her mark on that. But, like, Teddy's not just respected in the falconry world. She's respected in, like, the terrier world. Like, by some of the hardest hunting terrier men I know. Like, not, like they have that you will never hear them say a lick of anything but admiration for Teddy and her days hunting foxes and groundhogs with little dachshunds and a lurcher. Um, and, like, that's, I don't know if she still has lurchers, but, like, 
um, like people like Sean O'Neill and some of the most well-respected people digging to Terriers to this day, like look at Teddy like a legend. And I mean, she is a legend, but like, it's cool that it's cool. I love when people gas each other up. I love when people sing praise, like it's so easy to be overcome by negativity in today's society. So like, when I just hear people that are just singing people's praise all the time and have nothing but nice things to say about other people, it's, it's cool to see. And then I've never heard nothing but high praise for Teddy and I have nothing but high praise for Teddy and Teddy's had dogs from me. It's gone full circle. And that's, that circle matters in dogs. The person that gets you into a dog and a type of dog, and then you put, put a dog back in that person's hands. Like that, that full circle isn't talked about enough. And I think it should be. Um, like 10 years ago, I saw Sheldon Nicole's setter with his peregrine hunt. And I was like, I will own that breed one day. I love that breed. On the way here, I dropped his new setter puppy off from my dogs. Like, <laughs> and I was thinking about it. And I was like, dang, Sheldon, Sheldon had a dog named Lizzie 10 years ago. And she's passed. And now I just put, a, put the new generation back in his hands. Like it, it went full circle. So um, it was cool of Casey to to organize this and i hope we can get teddy on um to talk about it i don't know if you have plans to talk i've to already teddy. i've already done one with teddy awesome yeah. i i can't wait to hear it i mean yeah. you can read teddy's articles back in the old mm -hmm. hound magazines mm -hmm. of full cry like teddy's been there done that has yeah. all the t-shirts well and it's it's funny because you know like it was meeting teddy you know at the docks and field trials that i, that I told you about and that whole experience that was kind of like you know, in that conversation with her that I was just like, you know, and she was the one that initially, you know, brought up Casey and I already knew of Casey, of course, for, through social and everything. But like, she was the one that gave me his info. She's like, yeah, you should, you know, call him too or whatever. And, and so, you know, that, that meeting with her and that, that whole experience that I had with her at the field trials and stuff was really, I mean, for me, the inspiration on my end of all of this is the why I wanted to kind of try and put this series together was because I've, I've found, you know, I mean, you know, I have Vigilas also, and, you know, I mean, if I would have had anything to do over again, that would have probably been one of them. I mean, I love my Vigilas and stuff, but for what I like to do and for our area and stuff, like the Dachshunds are definitely for what I like to do, like a much better choice. You yeah. Know? And, I, and I, even I agree with that from yeah, afar. Like, yeah, if I was still here, if you told me I had to move back here tomorrow, I'd, I'd pick up a couple dachshunds and add a few more terriers and maybe mm -hmm. a beagle. And I'd, I'd party. That's, yeah. That's yeah. the way to do it here. For sure. And you know, I mean, but I didn't, what I didn't expect was I didn't expect to enjoy them this much. And, you know, to be a hundred percent honest, I, I knew that I would, like it knew that i would enjoy it but i didn't realize how much self-gratification that i would get from watching them develop the way they have and once i saw that and you know wanted to start doing some of the field trial stuff and then of course met teddy and then you know the more i've kind of gotten into the world a little bit you know like i said i just i for whatever reason i was just inspired i, I wanted to talk to more people that you know that have run or currently running dachshunds so well it's just like falconry meets dog trials even if you're not into trials even if you don't care about ribbons or placements you're putting names to faces you're meeting people from around the world and you're going to meet a lot of people that you don't even see on social media mm -hmm. and it and, and if you or you're you're finally meeting your internet friends and you're solidifying that relationship um and that's why like that's why i go to trials i 
I don't care if my docs come here and win nothing. Mm -hmm. I've been belly laughing for three days and I got to see a lot of people that are here for the same reason, you know, mm -hmm. they're into the dogs. So it's cool to see, it's cool to see people go down that path. Like I got a dog and now I'm going to get into more dog things. And then turns out you're like, dang, I really like other dog people, you know? Um, I've got a visa just like you. I've only got one, um, trigger. He's, he's eight now. And, uh, I've gone full tilt into the setters now, but I I'll always hold a special place in my heart and falconry for for Vislas. But like you said, for here, Dachshund is hard to beat. Yeah, and you know, kind of going back on your prior experiences, you know, I mean, I know, you know, I I of course, you know, was um, around, uh, you know, Zoid a little bit when you still had him, and um, you know, kind of got a very very small snapshot of you know seeing him work with you like on your job too yeah. you know um but i mean kind of i guess discuss a little bit um more about i mean what made that so i guess special you know to you in that regard not just in your falconry but your but your work career as well so I mean, a mini dachshund is the closest thing you're going to get or a Canetian or whatever, whatever the verbiage you want to use is the closest thing you're going to get to legal ferreting in the United States. <laughs> and a six to eight pound little dachshund can get some places. And in my work, I was doing a lot of attics and I was doing a lot of crawl spaces and I was doing dead animal removals and like I've said many times, the government spent billions or million, millions, if not billions of dollars trying to recreate a dog's nose. A dog is an in like it's it, you're not going to replace it. You're not going to beat a dog with anything else for what we want. And I started using dogs in work and clearing addicts. And Zoid was the first dog I had done it with. And to me, that was the dog that opened this like locked golden door that I didn't know existed. And like now I do the same work with terriers just because the terriers fit better for where I'm at. But like there's a dachshund would fit very well for my work still, but they wouldn't fit my hunting still. And so the Zoid was very special in that regard. And then Zoid was the first dog I ever titled Zoid. I put a field championship on, on Zoid and, and then through social media and through photos and through videos, a lot of people kind of built a following around Zoid and um I didn't realize how big it was until Zoid passed away. Just people came out of the woodwork and just to say like Zoid's the reason I have a dachshund today. And I've heard that more than once. And that to me is what made to now what makes Zoid so special. Like hearing that a dog I own once upon a time changed someone else's like entire trajectory in dogs and in falconry or in hunting that i mean that to me is incredible um and an irreplaceable and teddy's the reason i had zoid so like it's it's a chain effect and i mean dogs definitely coming like dog breeds come into vogue throughout falconry years like some years the dachshunds or the the hot dog or the cockers or the deckers or or whatever but um, that's why Zoid was will always be special for me. And then 
the funny thing about Zoid, and a lot of people don't even really know this, Zoid didn't really like anybody. Zoid only liked me. He was a bit of an ass. Yeah, and he was <laughs> he was an ass. He was very spicy. And knowing what I know now about dogs, I probably wouldn't have liked Zoid as much had I got him now as I did then. Um, <laughs> I've had a lot of different dogs over the years, so like, but Zoid was still the the dog for me that started it all and i'll always pay homage to that you know yeah and i think you bring up kind of a good point too as far as like i i, I look back and think about things that i thought were awesome at the time but the more you go and the more like experience you you have with certain things you look back and and you're like it really wasn't near as special as I thought it was like that particular bird that I had or dog or, or whatever. And then like fast forward, however many years you hear about that same, the same type of person talking about, you know, something similar about this amazing bird or amazing dog or whatever they have and stuff. And you just, you can't help but kind of smile internally yeah, <laughs> because like, <laughs> you're like out of your just huge wealth of experience, right. To be able to make that judgment. And then, but, but what makes it funny is you remember doing it yourself, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you relate and not enough to say anything, but enough, like you said, to smile to yourself and <laughs> they're, they're going to learn. When, so you didn't have any other dachshunds after Zoid then? No, that's not true. I had, I had Zoid. I had a son of Zoid named Stitch. I had his okay. brother Bender. I had wing. I totally remember now you mentioned that you ended up having to, once you moved, you had to relocate. Or, or yeah. So yeah. when I moved, um, I had a few close calls with coyotes and I didn't want that bad ending. So I had, I had sold Zoid's son. Um, there was a fiasco with wing, which was a co-ownership fiasco. So I had to give wing to someone unrelated to the situation um, and then a son of Zoids went to Nathan Danforth in, um, Arizona and that dog got killed by a rattlesnake. And that left me with, at that point I had one dox and left. It was my standard. It was my Tekel Vader. And, uh, it's hard to replace a dachshund. They're not, you wait, you're going to wait a year most of the time. And litters are two to six. Yeah. And so you, sometimes you might wait two years. I didn't want Nate to have to wait longer, so I'd loaned him Vader. And then once I saw how good Vader was doing with Nate and how much Nate enjoyed Vader, I uh, I just called him up one day and I said, if you just pay what I have into him, you can keep him. And um, that was the last of the dachshunds for me. Vader did a little bit better than the minis where I'm at in the desert. Um, and by a little bit better, I actually, he actually did a lot better. He just a much faster dog and it's much more open where I'm at. And, um, he was very true to voice. So, um, at that point I was just left with a, a Yag Terrier and I realized that the Terriers are a little bit less likely to get killed by coyotes and a, a little bit more able to cover ground in open ground where I'm at. Like out here, Dachshund's going to cover more ground faster because they can just run right under it. But and a terrier is slowed down by the cover, but it's it's the inverse out there. Yeah, I um, you know, like I said, I I wondered about kind of the subtle differences there, 
you know, I mean, I assume that's probably what the, what the main reason was, you know, why you decided to go the, the route that you did. And I, I heard you talking about it some this weekend too, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, you know, I, as far as, um, like the other aspects of like dachshund ownership though, I, I have to ask you because I mean, there's probably going to be other people throughout the series that I'm going to ask too, but did you ever experience just like, you know, I mean, what is it about small breeds, particular dachshunds that just make them almost impossible to like 1 million, like 100% potty train, like housebreak? <laughs> they just, I don't know if, if other people have had these issues or if it's just, you know, but everybody that I've talked to has had some degree of issues with, with the mini dachshunds. Vader, I never had the issues with Vader, but that's a dog that weighs twice as much. Mm -hmm. With the minis, the only time I really truly had 100% potty trained dogs was with dog doors mm. to like a, I mean, you can get like sliding glass door inserts into like a, like a four by four cube just so they can go outside. And mm -hmm. I just, I don't know if they're too stubborn to hold it or just stubborn. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. They're definitely, <laughs> I don't, I, I, I think they're just too stubborn to hold it. Like Zoid, even Zoid, um, when he was like older, like four or five years old, um, he, if he heard you wake up and he was in his kennel and you didn't let him out before you made coffee, he was going to go to the bathroom, even in his kennel, mm. um, or right, right in front of the back door. And if it was raining, he was going for the bathroom right in front of the back door. <laughs> and that's when I said, you know what? I'm just going to put a dog door in. Mm. And my, my issues went away with, when I, when I put the dog door in. Um, but if I went to visit anybody's house, same thing. It's back to square one. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I'm definitely a lot better at training dogs now than I am was then, but that was how I solved that. And I, I've heard it from many, many people. Yeah. And I just wanted to get your take on that because, you know, I, um, I, I some people just don't have them inside also, you know, I know. I <laughs> Yeah, I know a lot of people yeah. that keep them like beagles. Yeah. 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 And they just, you know, they'll still go outside and spend time with them and, and, um, you know, this, that, and the other, and they even build like, you know, Cadillac, you know, uh, kennels for them and stuff, you know, to keep them in and all that. But, but, um, I know like, as far as, you know, I know Feliciano told me about, you know, the belly band deal and stuff and that helped a lot with, you know, yeah, the, the males. Yeah. yeah. With the, cause I mean, that was one thing they did constantly. I mean, Hades, he started marking when he was like six months old and he didn't, he, he still does like, you'll still try and Horace is starting to do it now too. And it's just like, I'm so glad that someone told me about that. I mean, the, yeah, that's, that's my aversion to males in general. It's yeah. not even marking inside. It's marking in general. I don't, yeah. Nothing worse than having your bags by the truck right before you leave and the dog comes outside and pisses on your bag right in front of you and just looks <laughs> you in the eye and does it. <laughs> like I have 14 dogs currently and 13 of them are female for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, once again, if I had known better, you know, I might have gone a different route also, but like it just so happened that what was available to me were, were males. And now, now that I have males, I'm going to keep probably getting males until I don't have them anymore. Yeah. But. And that's, that's the other thing with dachshunds. Like you wait, you've waited, a, like here's the scenario. You waited a year for a litter. There's two mm -hmm. and they're both male. Mm -hmm. Do you roll your deposit into the next litter? 
or do you just suck it up and get a mail? Most people are just going to suck it up and get a mail. Mm -hmm. I would suck it up and get it. Mm -hmm. If I had waited a year, I'd, I'd, and it's the right breeding, I'd, I'm going to, I'm going to get that dog. Sure. Yeah. It's yeah. not like, it's not like a Saluki or a short hair litter that there's 11 puppies to pick from. Right. There, there, you, there might be two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not getting, you're not waiting to get like a golden doodle, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and there's but, not a lot of people breeding them. And even the ones that are like, they only have three or four dogs. So that's maybe one to two litters a year. Yeah. Well, especially, and especially people breeding them for what we want to use them for. Well, yeah, yeah that's the other yeah. thing, breeding them to do. And there's a lot of people in the docks and trial world that don't even run them outside of a rabbit pen. That's fine and dandy, whatever floats their boat, but that falconry people need to know a little bit more information and you could strike gold getting dogs from those lines. Absolutely. But I, I, me personally, knowing what I know about now about dogs is I'm going to buy a dog from someone that I saw both parents hunt outside of a fence pen a hundred times before I buy a dog that's the, the owner can't even control and has to chase down and catch in a fence pen. Like I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Well, and you know, something else I like to ask people too, with a lot of experience, especially with the smaller breeds and stuff is, um, I mean, when do you like to get your pup? I mean, do you like to wait till closer to the, the, the 12-ish week mark? Or There's I mean, a big asterisk on my answer here. Yeah. And I am, I've raised a lot of dogs. I've, I've raised a few dozen dogs in my life now. And if I know the person whelping it and I know how they whelp dogs and I know they're going to go out there and put hands on these dogs every day and I know they're going to keep them clean and mm -hmm. start them the way I'd start them, I don't care when I get it. Yeah. But- if they're the opposite and they just keep them out in a dirty pen or they just they only clean them once a day when they get home from work and these dogs are somewhere on the back 40 in a pen and don't get really hands put on them much i, I will be there at <laughs> six and a half seven weeks at their door no excuses here i am i want my dog i want my dog now mm. and i'm not even gonna pay a hauler to grab because i want to prevent uh a dog learning bad habits as soon as i can Mm -mm. And I think dogs whelped clean tend to be cleaner dogs longer later on in life. And I know a few dog people I respect that kind of align with that belief. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I do agree with that. And I appreciate you, you know, clarifying, you know, that because that's something that a lot of people haven't gone into greater detail in describing, you know, because like, I know both of mine, I was fortunate to at least have people that were always around the, you know, and were constantly working with them. And, you know, one of the big selling points of me getting, you know, Horace was because he, you know, came from a, a, a breeder who's a falconer also, and he was already training him, you know, to, you know, on rabbits and stuff, you know, and, and doing all these things. And, and, um, so, I mean, I was happy to get both of my dogs around that 12 to 13 week, you know, mark. And because they had those good four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, and it saved me a month of also like just a hard month. Yeah. Too. Yeah. <laughs> a, a pure hell. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, hard, a, yeah. So a small dog at eight weeks old is a lot more mm -hmm. than a Visla or a oh, Setter yeah. or any other breed. At, yeah. They're very different dogs. Well, and conversely, I mean, I got my, my, my um older Vizsla, you know, Shay, I mean, I got her at eight weeks and then I got Blitz a little bit probably earlier than when I should have. It was probably closer to like and seven. You probably had their, you had their systems figured out in like a week. Well, but that week 
though was way more miserable oh absolutely no absolutely <laughs> but, but but doing and, the same thing with the, like a dachshund would have been yeah yeah i'm sure it would have been way worse yeah for sure but uh anyway no i mean like i said i i i like getting people's takes on that because i have gotten a very i won't say very different but i've not gotten the same answer twice i don't think really you know as that's far as cool I to hear yeah. that that and that's a lot of the reason I breed dogs, because uh, I know how they're whelped, and I that whelp them the way I want to whelp them, mm -hmm. and I can pick the dog that I want. If I, if I'm breeding a litter that I want a dog out of, I'm gonna get the dog I want, and mm -hmm. I don't care what anyone says. And that's that's huge. So yeah, no, that's cool to hear that you're even asking that. I it, I love topics that are like. It seems so small, but like it, they're actually they're so freaking important. They're though. so important. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and you wouldn't know they were important until you've experienced how important they are. No, know? exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've had some dogs that'll blow bubbles in their own piss and like, <laughs> I, God. and yeah. it's, it's a reflection of how they were whelped. I, yeah. I will take that to my grave. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's very possible. I mean, yeah, like I said, I've, I've learned a lot and, and, um, you know, I wouldn't, I still am, am very honest. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself to be a, an A plus dog handler still by, by this point, but I do feel like I've learned a lot, you know, between the Vigilas and the Dachshunds now and stuff. And, you know, I mean the Vigilas, I mean, especially Shay, I mean, she got really attached to me. So she had some separation anxiety issues and things that I had to work through, you know, and even now she'll still get points where she'll like, you know, just throw up you know in her kennel and stuff if she's been away you know for me for a while and, and, and things and then, like yeah, that and, and part of that's and, that part of that's a beast thing yeah too. exactly you know and that's it's just part of the breed i mean they get so attached and um but you know i mean like i said i mean i i, I like <laughs> i like doing my part to some degree and trying to save some other people some some extra grief you know, so I like asking stuff like that because I wish that I would have heard other people talk about it first. Before. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> I didn't hear about it until I went through hell. Yeah. And I had a conversation with one of my best friends, Chad Reynolds, who's mm -hmm. a very world respected dog handler. And he was like it was something he said with like the utmost like this is important. And I was like, damn, if he's like he's that picky about it. So yeah, it's something I I'm picky about now too. Yeah, and I I look forward to listening to some. I I, I got a chance to finally really actually sit and listen to a few of those episodes now, and I'm going to start listening to that podcast more. I think it's pretty neat, and I've I've just a few that I've listened to. I've already you know heard them talk about stuff that I wouldn't have you know. It's like kind of connected some dots and stuff. That's pretty cool. I thought. Yeah, one of my favorite things they do on his podcast is uh they they have a running thing now. It's called Keeper Cull. Mm -hmm. And it's not like hard call. It's not like take the dog out back and end it. Just get rid of. Um, and some it's, I love hearing different dog handlers opinions on, mm -hmm. would you get rid of this dog if it does these things? Right. And yeah. uh, the, they're always such great, great, great questions. So <laughs> if nothing else, it definitely makes you think. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no. It, yeah. They're thought provoking. Yeah, for sure. But well, like, is there anything else before we switch topics again that you want to add about dachshunds in particular, about your experience with them that we may have just either glossed over or not even mentioned? I mean, like I said, we've known each other for a while now, so we're going to kind of probably be all over the place with, with conversation because, yeah. you know. But... Um, 
what what about like um have you ever had any preferences with you know color or you know whatever or is all that kind of stuff still just you know personal preference like as far as just the you know just some of the different color variations and things like that or so i kind of have my own stance on color and yeah. it, it it relates to another dog i waited six years to get a saluki mm-hmm. not because salukis weren't available i wanted a light colored saluki i got a lot of dogs and if i'm gonna feed a dog and look at a dog for 15 years it's gonna fit the image of the dog that i had in my kennel <laughs> and uh a lot of saluki people didn't like that because i was offered black dogs throughout the throughout the years and i was like I don't want a black Saluki. I, I'm not in a rush to get a Saluki. And when I get one, it's going to look the way I want. And a lot of people get, well, if you're, you're picking color, you're picking for the wrong reasons. I don't like that. I, I, a dog is a 15 year commitment. Sometimes if get the dog that you want to look at, Mm -hmm. um, my dad always said life's too short to hunt behind an ugly dog. So if it's a dog you perceive as <laughs> ugly, don't get it, yeah. you yeah. know, cause they're going to piss you off some days and the way they look might be their saving grace. <laughs> um, I like red dachshunds. Um, I, but it's not that just that I like red dachshunds. I think, or from what I've seen, the red dachshunds have thinner coats and okay. I like less coat on mm-hmm. a dachshund. I don't, I don't want a running little mop and, and it's nothing against the little running mops. I mean, you can groom them, but I, from what I've seen over dachshunds over the years, the red ones have less coat than the black and tan ones. And that to me is enough reason to justify. And I think the red's easier to see. So um, I've had black and tan ones and I've had red ones, but the ones I bred and kept for myself were always red for a reason. And it's, that's what I, that's what I liked, you know? Yeah. Um, I do see a lot more black and tans these days than I do red ones. And I, I don't know, maybe more people like black and tan. And if that's the case, good for them. Um, mm. but my personal opinion is I like red, red little mini dachshunds. <laughs> now the tackles, when you switch into the standards, um, I like the black and tan ones, the red ones to me, I don't know. They just don't, they just don't, they don't do it for me. <laughs> I, I don't, I think the red wire coated standards are ugly and I'll go on the record to say that. I, well, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, no. And, and that's, and like I said, I appreciate it when people can just sometimes give an answer of like, I don't have a good reason. I just like that. You know, I, I mean, I think a black and tan <laughs> wire looks nice. Mm-hmm. Whereas a red or whatever, I bore, I think they call it. It's ugly. It's gray. It looks like a dingy mop. <laughs> I might be a little mean, but that's just my, that's how I view it. And um, Part of the reason I have English setters right now and why they're my main focus is I find them striking. Like I very rarely look at an English setter on point and don't feel the same way I felt the first time I saw it. I think they're gorgeous dogs. I think they're much prettier than English pointers. And, and, if you go by like the trials or the averages, the average pointer is a better dog than the average setter. Cool. I think setters look a hundred times better. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't, I don't hold it. And I know I'm, I'm in my, I'm not in the majority on my opinion of that, but like, I, I don't hold it against someone, whether they've been in dogs 10 minutes or 10 years that has a preference on how their dog looks like we get to pick <laughs> and if I like how it looks, I'm going to like it a lot more. My goal is to eventually have one of each color variation. And, um, I mean, as long as of course they do what I want them to do and everything, but like, um, 
you know, I have noticed that there are some, some things about like, you know, my black and tan, you know, Hades, there's some things about his coat that I both like and dislike versus, you know, my, my dapple Horace, you know, like there's, there's aspects about both of their coats that I both like and dislike. Yeah. And, um, eventually you'll find which one you really truly like yeah. more, but, but, and that's also a big reason why I want a red also eventually is cause like, you know, like I, I, all the colors are shiny. Dude. Yeah. 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 I know. But I mean, it's just like, and yeah, I, I, I don't know which one I'm going to end up preferring in the end. I mean, so far I'm, you know, I've, I've always thought dapples look the neatest. Um, but like once, once again, it's kind of like what you said, I mean, it's, it's whatever, but, um, but no, man, I, like I said, I didn't know if there was any other thing in particular, um, that we should brush on or kind of broach before we, we switch topics or whatever, but that was the only other thing that came to mind. I'm glad we looped of. back to that. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's another one of those conversations that like people don't, they're just like, I just want a dog. And I'm like, there's more mm. to picking a dog, how it's whelped, what it looks like, it's color, it's coat. Well, and I, I think that's kind of a bummer too, is that I, I know that people are, there are breeders that have kind of started, you know, to kind of breed more for color than ability and stuff too. And that that, part is definitely a bummer. And I agree with that. And like, and I'm not condoning that, but I'm not, what I'm not also not condone or what I am condoning is I see a lot of breeders blacklist people like, well, this person, the first thing they asked about was color Mm -hmm. and they like write them off as being inexperienced Mm -hmm. or silly. And they're not, and you shouldn't blacklist them and you shouldn't write them off. If someone called me tomorrow and said, I want to try color setter and I'm willing to wait for one, I'll get them one. But like, I'm not going to hold that. I'm not going to hold that against them. And if you got on a list for a dachshund and you were like, I want a red one and I will wait until I get a red one. I don't think that should be held against you. And I don't yeah. think that should be held against anyone. Yeah. So, um, no, it's, I'm glad we circled around to that. Um, it's another thing that I don't think enough new people get it. Like they, no one defends them in their decision to be specific. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Well, cool. Well, I'm, I mean, if you can't think of anything else then, um, before we get too much further too, I mean, as you know, I mean, one of the things that we like to talk about, you know, on the podcast too, is just, you know, how people got their start. And I know you've probably talked about this, so many times and everything, but they may have not actually heard like in your voice, you know, what like we inspired you to get into falconry and stuff, but like, just talk about, you know, your path and discovering it and, um, you know, what made you want to get into it. So I went to a Texas Hawking Association meet in 2012 mm-hmm. in Waco. I was in the army then. And, uh, I'd gotten to see Sheldon Nicole, who had a peregrine with a setter. And then I also saw people flying hair socks on squirrels with dogs. Um, and at the time, um, seeing the, the hawks work in tandem with the dogs was really what like set the hook. Um, and then watching Harris hawks grunt and communicate with dogs. I didn't even realize what I was witnessing at the time. And like those subtleties in falconry of dog hawk or dog falcon communication, um, another thing that aren't really talked about, um, that really set the hook. And from there, I mean, I bought every book I could. I spent time reading Yahoo groups and scrubbing NAFX and was obsessed. And like, even when I deployed overseas in the army, I took a Pelican case of nothing but falconry books. And I just 
read them over and over and over <laughs> again. And I painted this picture in my head. I was like, someday I want to fly a goshawk on a pheasant and I want my dog laying down in the background. And I saw a goshawk on a rooster pheasant. I think it was like a visa in the background. And I eventually got to do that. And it was just like a accumulation of like a 10 year wanting to do something. Like we don't have a lot of those in life. We don't have a lot of long-term goals that you achieve. And so when you finally achieve it, even to me, like, or to anyone else, like I saw this photo and I wanted to recreate it. That sounds so silly, but like it, it meant a lot to me to go to Montana and catch a uh, rooster pheasant with my first imprint goshawk over my visla and i have that photo and like it's not even that good of a photo but like to me it's like <laughs> super important um and i had that that's that's what got me into falconry and then even now like when i relate back to the harris hawks communicating with dogs and dogs communicating with harris hawks chasing squirrels in tandem and then you have bloodthirsty falconers thrown in that mix um I see that now in quail hawking and I've had um, my last goshawk hash brown when dog would go on point once he once hash brown was like catching quail every day he would like stand up in the on the glove he'd start peeping and he would start making these little vocalizations that were outside of his regular like vocabulary and it was it was like an excitement peep that he just saw that dog slam on point and he knows what's next. And it even evolved if he was like a slightly less or slightly lower in weight than I wanted him. And he was like a little bit more yarked up. Um, he would fly to the dog 300 yards, 500 yards and just leave me behind it. At that point I was no longer relevant to this Hawk. And he learned that the dog going on point meant a cubby rise was about to happen. And he would fly to the dog and, hover up and I'd release the dog verbally running out of breath and uh, the quail would flush. And at that point, and then sometimes he'd put a quail in and the dog and him would reflush it on their own without me just as I show up. And like that, that to me was like, dang it, there's that, there's a full circle that had just been made in me getting into Falker and me doing not only what got me in, but something completely different, but it's the same. It's yeah. so the dog hawk communication thing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that was my start and that's where I'm at now. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, I guess branching it now into where you're at now and, and where you have been for a little while. I mean, I, I obviously the, the quail hawking and aspect of, of falconry is, is what's turning your crank and has turned it for a while. I mean, is that what you think you're going to continue to do like indefinitely or I know you mentioned that you were wanting to do, um, you know, some other things with, with goshawks and stuff. Um, I mean, do you think though that the quail is always going to be part of your falconry from here on out? It might not be quail, but it will be upland. It will be upland birds. And that's the cool thing about flying upland birds. And that's the cool thing about goshawks is, Every state west of the Mississippi has some form of upland birds. So whether I'm hawking huns and sharptail in Montana with a goshawk and a dog, or hawking chucker over a dog with a goshawk in Nevada, like there's enough difference between species of upland bird for me to like I, that. That's going to turn my crank for a long time. And it, catching a quail now still feels like the first one and it it, <laughs> it hasn't worn off and it, i don't see it wearing off like seeing dogs go on point and then another dog slam into an honor 
still raises hairs on my spine and I don't, I don't, and then to have a hawk go in and catch it after. And don't get me wrong. I love gun hunting over my dogs and that to me is relaxing, <laughs> but catching quail over my dogs is what like makes me wake up in the morning. And like when I want to relax a nice peaceful hunt with my dogs and a shotgun, but like adding a hawk is like that, that is my lifeblood. That is, that's my thing, you know? So <laughs> I do eventually want to fly um, like a big female goshawk over two Salukis on some jackrabbits, uh, like, kind of like Dave Canellis is doing mm. with his whippet and his windhound or whatever. Um, that's not really done. Like I've seen Chad Reynolds do it with his jeer falcon over Salukis and Hungarian greyhounds and other types of sighthounds. I've seen Greg Rayborn do it. I've seen Terrence do it. Um, and that stuff's really cool. I just don't know if me and Falcons really communicate on the same like plane. So like <laughs> I want to do that same thing, but with a goshawk, I would love to try it with a larger Falcon someday. Like they do. I get to see enough of it that like the itches, it's not, it doesn't itch right now. It's, it's, it's there, but I get to see it a lot. Like when they go to NAFA meets and those guys fly their big Falcons over sighthounds. And I mean, it's just as, attractive to other falconers is going out with the eagles i get to see it at home enough and i'm very grateful for that but for now it's what i'm doing is what i want to keep doing um this year i'd like to go catch more sharp tails and catch chucker and catch um huns and stuff in the early season before our quail season really gets going yeah and i mean you've flown you know just uh Obviously, I mean, Hash Brown was was pure North American, right? I he mean, was a pure North yeah, American yeah. from New Mexico. I mean, what are what are your thoughts then, as far as your preferences? Um, you know, between like the hybrids and and pure North American, and I mean, have you I, had enough experience? To I don't have a like, deep enough well to draw from yeah. to really. I I I would cast gaze on someone with my amount of experience making that judgment, and I. It really irks me when I see people like that have flown like one fin and one North American being like, oh, the fins are so much better. And it's like, how do you know you just weren't a better falconer when you got your hands on that fin? Like, (laughs) go back to the North American or something. Um, I'd love to pull a North American again from the Gila. And I loved my North American enough to fly another one. Now my current uh, Beautyoides Cross, I really like it, but I have also learned a lot of lessons from my North American. So I don't, is is the bird in front of me currently a better bird because of my advancement in falconry or is it a better bird because they're just more chill, easier going goshawks, which are now a separate species? Mm. Um, I don't know. So I don't, I don't really have a preference. I, I, I don't have enough experience to really say I have a preference. Yeah. I flew a hand-me-down North American female. I flew a chamber race 50-50 cross. I've flown a Siberian female on loan. And then I've raised three imprints myself and flown two of them. One of the imprints was flown by someone else, but I raised it and hacked it. And so I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have the experience to really pick a side really. Um, To me though, we have wild take and we should be very appreciative of it and we should utilize it. So it's, that's definitely a rite of passage for me, like finding a wild goshawk, pulling a wild goshawk, training and being successful. My end goal was to let it go. And I, I didn't get there, but 
Um, I, I still think everybody that flies goshawks should pull a wild one at some point in their, their life. There's enough states where it's open. So there's no reason not to. It'll cost you the same financially. A couple weeks off work is the same price as you'd pay to buy one. Yeah, I mean, it kind of ends up being a wash. It really is just, it's kind of like going back to the dog world is just what's your preference? Do you prefer an imprint or a chamber bird or, you know, yeah, and, it, and then, you know, all that kind of stuff too. And, there's a there's a falconer up in Washington, Josh Davis, and uh, dude's a go-getter. Like if, if someone tells him he can't do it, he does it. And I, <laughs> I love his training updates on his, like he took a deaf dog and made it a, like a nice bird dog. Like, and everyone was like, oh, don't waste your time. And I love that about Josh. And he got a yag um, that he made into an incredible falconry dog. And he uh, he recently, he trapped a family bird from a, a goshawk nest site. And I'm, I've been loving following that. Like every time he sends me an update, I, I love following that. And like, cause that's such a different experience than what I had, you know, yeah. he not only found a nest, he monitored it, he watched him. And then like, right when that bird should be at dispersal age, he, he went out there and he, he trapped a few, well, I don't know if he trapped a few of them, but he trapped the one he kept. And um, obviously, if he had trapped other ones, he let them go. But he's training it right now. And that's so cool to me. Um, I love, like, he made it happen. Mm -hmm. Well, and before, once again, we, we kind of switch topics again. Like, I mean, is there anything else that you want to mention about, you know, quail hawking specifically, since it's been such a big part of your, your life the last, like, handful of years that – I mean, what aspects of, of like the, the quail falconry is it like other than, you know, the, the point and, you know, like, um, you know, the other aspects that make the, you know, the hair raise on your neck and all that kind of stuff. I mean, wh why, why do you still prefer that? Because I mean, there are a lot of things about quail hunting that are kind of a turn off to some people. I mean, myself in particular, I wouldn't want flights that were that long and stuff, you know, but like, and that's, that's the quail hawking I created, you know, mm -hmm. like, and when people hear quail hawking, they group it all as this one encompassing topic, and it's not. Mm -hmm. Montezuma quail in New Mexico is very different than Montezuma quail in southeastern Arizona. Mm -hmm. Catching gambles quail in Albuquerque, New Mexico is very different than catching gambles quail in northwestern Arizona. Bobwhite in Missouri are different than the bobwhite here at this trial in Kentucky that we've been seeing this whole weekend. Um and each species of quail is a unique quarry. Um, they There are similarities, but um, for example, Montezuma quail, they're probably the easiest to get steady dog work on, but they're hardest for the dogs to learn and find. But And even though they may might be the fastest quail in the long run um, because of their bigger wing loading size, they fly the most honest for a goshawk or a cooper's hawk and allow themselves to be caught in the air more consistently than say a gambles quail or a bobwhite that tends to use cover if it has it available. So a lot of people have this like image of quail hawking of like, you're going to run really far and then you're going to dig a quail out and throw it to your bird. That's so far from covering all of quail hawking that it, it like pains me to see. <laughs> um, and the elephant in that room too is even if your bird is flying quail very far and putting it into cover and it does get dug out, you got to have a dog that one found the quail two You had to know where that quail is and you had to have a bird that flew it hard enough to put it into that cover. So like, so what if a falconer rewards their bird for doing that? And there's, there's very polarizing views on both sides of that coin, but you got to, 
you got to be successful before you can add style and do it better. So like um, that, that always missed me. And just in New Mexico alone, we have four species of quail. I have four species of quail within a three hour radius of my house. And they're all very dependent. It's so terrain dependent, just like rabbit hawking, rabbit hawking, in Western Kentucky, where we're at right now is probably very different than it is in Northeastern Maine. Or um, I got to see rabbit hawking down in South Georgia with Sean Derrick and his beagles and yags. And he was, he's flying a goshawk and stuff. People told me he was crazy to do and he's doing it well. And he's doing it over like a dozen beagles and it's rad, but (laughs) you need a dozen beagles down there. It's waves and waves of briar. Um, so yeah, so what I'd really want to just hit on is that quail hawking is very different. It's terrain dependent and species dependent. And then it changes too once you change the birds you're flying on them too. Like I learned very quickly in New Mexico that flying scaled quail out in the open rolling grasslands with a falcon is night and day than a goshawk. They don't even want to fly for a falcon, whereas a goshawk, they'll get up and go 800 yards if they can. And mm-hmm. and you'll get into the coveys and you'll learn like each coveys have like a little bit different characteristics too. Like I have some coveys that I know if I don't get them on the initial, I'm not getting them. You're not getting them out. They're going to be like homing missiles to the most quail catraz <laughs> pack rat <laughs> fortress it's not even worth digging out if you could. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also have coveys where like I'll take a new bird because I know they're going to dump into like some sage that's waist high or some juniper. And you can get a clean reflush out of that stuff. And uh, it's great for a new bird, you know. I don't mind taking a seasoned bird where they have to catch it on the first. But And then there's some quail that people people see quail the most in the desert near the neighborhoods and they act like that's the only place to find quail but what they won't admit is they're just not that good at finding quail and their dogs aren't that good because <laughs> if you i've never gone anywhere that has urban quail and been skunked 3 miles outside of neighborhoods like i'm talking go miles into the desert and those same quail are still there i promise you just you got to have the dog power and that's why my string of dogs is so deep is because if you really want to like be able to catch quail anywhere, especially in the desert, you got to have the ability to run fresh dogs that might not have hunted yesterday that run big and cover some country. Um, And that's why I've been so supportive and I've been trying to get more and more people into quail hawking is because what, what I've seen over the last few years is lots and lots of people realizing that, there's a million ways to skin the quail hawking cat. Like there, there's people in California that are figuring it out. There's people in Southwestern Arizona that are figuring it out. And I love it. I'm here for it. And I will help them along the way. I loan them dogs. I, I'll give them, I'll give them dogs. And it's cool seeing them figure out like Nate Danforth and Brian Wood flying side by side in the same area. Nate flying a goshawk and Brian flying a Cooper's hawk. And they share each other's dogs and, share fields and stuff, but like seeing them figure out the Arizona or the Southwestern part of Arizona component of it is really cool. And they've been branching out and catching Montezuma quail and they're, they, they quickly realized that catching Montezuma quail with their birds was very different than catching the gambles quail in their backyard. And so it's cool to see other people like, uh, step into that. And like, 
I, I hope that trend continues. Like my past apprentice, he or I, I guess I don't know how to word that. He was my apprentice, not an apprentice anymore. He flies a Gosog Dalton. He's flying quail in the same area I live in, and he his goshawk that he raised last year, in my opinion, like if you were comparing flight to flight, flies quail as good as Hash Brown did in his third season. And that to me is really impressive. But he learned really quickly that you really got to have the dog power where we live to really produce consistent quail slips. So he started adding dogs and he used to just borrow my dogs every day. And like, he lives close enough that, that it wasn't a big deal, but um, I've been loving seeing other people figure it out. And um, I love to have a hand in helping them too. So when people hear quail hawking, they just assume it's all the same and it is so different. It's not even funny. So I could go on about that one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. I've never had a chance to, because like I said earlier, other other podcasts that I've done in the past have never been a falconry specific podcast. Mm -hmm. So it's it's always like, well, how do you get a bird? And (laughs) how do you keep it coming back to you? And now you just answer those questions on repeat. And anyone who's been a falconer more than a day gets those too. So it's cool to finally be able to delve, delve into that cool yeah well i'm like i said i'm glad that uh finally had the chance to do it you know and and that like i said that's the reason why i wanted to to give you you know the the chance to i don't know quantify that more so to speak because you know i mean to be honest i hadn't really even seen quail hawking in person until recently you know until when i went to mexico and you know it's kind of funny you're joking about it's like well you you could have seen that, you know, here or whatever, you know, and I was just like, but yeah, but I'm in Mexico now, <laughs> you know, it's like, but, um, but, you know, I mean, I, I had to have, I don't know, like, I knew that there had to have been like differences because I mean, even just the short time that I was there and like Rodrigo and those guys took me to see some of that stuff. And then like when I went back earlier this year and saw, um, you know, quail hawking with some, with some other species, you know, like the apomatos and peregrines and stuff like that. And, and seeing how they hunted these birds, you know, from species to species and stuff with some of the different ones they have, like I knew that it couldn't have been as cut and dry. You yeah. Know? It's not. Yeah. And I mean, and it was blatantly obvious, you know, that it, that it wasn't, you know? So, you know, I mean, like I said, it's probably for the best that, that you got a chance to, you know, clarify all of that because, you know, there are, there are subtle things here and there, especially when people are trying to figure out all the different things that we were trying to figure out, not more than a handful of years ago. Yeah. You know, it's considerations. Yeah. People need to think about these things. Yeah. I got, I got humbled really hard when I moved from Missouri to New Mexico, finding Bob White consistently, it covers thick and it's, it's thorny and stuff like that. But bobwhite are pretty consistent generally. Mm-hmm. And then moving to New Mexico and then switching to scaled quail, the dogs I had at the time for bobwhite in Missouri were not the best dogs for scaled quail where I moved to in New Mexico. And I learned really quick that big running dogs have an application. And it, it was not Missouri, but it definitely is New Mexico. If you want to find scaled quail without marking them from a car or 
hawking just neighborhoods you got to have some dogs that are going to cover some ground and the thing gun hunters don't understand about falconry is i don't have all day to go look for quail when i'm when i got a hungry goshawk on my fist i got like 20 minutes maybe 30 <laughs> to at least put up one you know mm -hmm. so there's a reason sometimes i i've caught flack for it they see a photo where i have three dogs three bird dogs in the background and they're like did you really need three dogs to catch a quail? Yes, I did. And if you can do it better, come show me and I will eat my lunch. Because <laughs> those three dogs hunt independently and I might have a dog 600 yards to my left on point while I got a dog 300 yards in front of me on point. And I'm gonna go to the close dog first and sometimes I get lucky and I catch that quail and I'm running to the next dog on point. And that's... That's the only way, like if you want to catch three quail in two hours in an area where they're hard to find, that's how you got to do it. Yeah. And I mean, and those dogs are pointing different coveys. And what another part of quail hawking that people don't understand is when there's 30 rabbits in 10 acres, there's 30 rabbits dispersed amongst those 10 acres. But when there's 30 quail in 10 acres, that's one covey that move in unison around that 10 acres. So you got to find that group and split it up if you want to have multiple flights. But that first flight, they're all together. And so people are like, well, yeah, there's a lot of quail. But that whole group of quail for that, say, 10 acres or 100 acres, those groups of quail move together. So, like, yes, there might be 500 quail in 100 acres, but they're moving in groups of 15 or 20, 25. And that makes it just as hard to find a covey of quail as it is a single rabbit slip in an, over an area. And so it that's why you run bird dogs at point. And so people people don't get it unless they've done it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, or at least seen it, you know, and, and just can appreciate you know, just the, um, the subtle differences and the gravity of what it takes to, to make all that stuff work, you know, for sure. But well, and like you said, I mean, I know that we could, you know, talk about some certain things, literally the, probably the rest of the day, but, um, before, I mean, we, we call this good and, and start to wrap things up a little bit. I definitely want to kind of end on the same note that we usually end on and get at least one or two of your favorite hunting stories, experiences about, you know, particular, you know, um, either birds or dogs that you've had and then, and then end with, um, you know, the best piece of advice that you could think of to pass on, you know, to people and then, you know, call it good, man. Um, favorite hunting story, any falconer that's been a falconer for more than a few seasons has a toolbox full favorite hunting story. I guess if you had to ask me right now about a personal bird of mine, um, McDermott taught me a lot about quail hawking and bird dogs, and he really lit that fire, and so did his books. He did in person. He's a great friend, but he had came down to New Mexico that first season I had hash brown, and uh, my visa went on point. Young setter came in, slammed it back, and uh, quail started to run. Scaled quail love to run, and that can be hard for a young dog, but a seasoned dog makes short work of it. And at this point, Trigger was like starting to teeter into what I call 
would call it seasoned dog and he was getting pretty good at scaled quail and uh quail started to run and i always had a verbal f- release on my visa i don't really have it on my setters but um goshawk takes off in like a searching flight and he finds the running he sees the running quail before we do he's the reason we know they're running and he got really good at this and he would pitch up and he'd go maybe 30 50 feet and kind of like flare his wings like a kestrel and kind of hover there and those quail stop running they pin and so i'm screaming free which is my release word for trigger and he runs in and he flushes the covey so a covey just erupts under a hovering goshawk (laughs) and i got mike mcdermott right next to me and uh Hash Brown folds his wings and just smacks one right out of the air, like right over a verbal release after a pointed find. And uh, the person who had got me into quail hawking, the person who had taught me quail hawking and got me into Vislas is right there with me for the first time for me doing it on my own for him to bear witness. And uh, that, that to me is always a favorite story. And so there was a person who's now a falconer there, her name's Hannah Hayes, and uh, when she came out to that trip, she just wanted to see falconry. She she had no interest in getting into it, and uh, when she left, she was like, "No, I will." That that set so that same thing that I experienced in Texas um, uh, with the Harris Hawks and the dogs that setting the hook for me that set the hook for her because she was just a gun hunter at the time with one Visla, and now. Now she's like a dog trainer and a falconer now. So like that to me is a favorite story for not just because Mike was there, but because it it created another falconer who flies over dogs now. If there's any other, you know, memorable, um, you know, like, like the most memorable dog that you either have now or have had in the past, as far as, you know, your impact on not just your, your falconry, but could be any way you feel free to mention that also, but I know you've had a lot of dogs too. So I yeah. Know. yeah. Favorite dog. I mean, depends on the day. Um, <laughs> in the circumstance, I'm sure. But I guess another favorite story was my best friend, Yubi. Um, he was flying a red tail on jackrabbits up in Nevada and uh, hadn't caught any yet. And uh, I took my dog's invader up there. Invader was running one just open on a jackrabbit, trying his best to keep up. And uh, his, it was his first red tail. Catches that jackrabbit over a dog. And it was that, I mean, that was, so that's, my childhood best friend, his first bird, his first jackrabbit. And I didn't live near him at the time, but I happened to be there for that. That's another favorite story. Favorite dog. I can't really pick a favorite dog. Zoid will always be among the favorites for like opening that door. Trigger will always be among the favorites for, um, he was the first pointing dog of my home that I was catching consistently over. And, Although I've transitioned into setters, I still have Trigger, and he will still be my right-hand man. Um, And then Kira is the dog that sold me full send on setters for my own. She was the first setter I raised. I had had two before her, but she was the first one I raised, and she was the one that, like, she's just been a a once-in-a-lifetime dog. Her first season, I caught uh, five of the six North American quail species over her. And she was my first big runner, and she, uh, she's what transitioned me being stoked about catching one quail a day to 
segmenting my falconry into now we're catching daily limits, which is three, because me and Trigger would be trading off from the first quail we caught, and Kira'd already be on the next covey pointed, and we and she'd hold those birds till we got there. And so those three dogs, it those three definitely. I guess you could add a fourth one. I got a I've had a few Yag Terriers over the years. But the one that really full sold me on the breed, I was kind of ambivalent to them. Like I had them, I used them, I loved them. But Mouse is a dog I have now, and she's getting up there in age. But she was the first Yag Terrier I had that was so full of personality and so unique. And just the only thing stopping her from speaking English is vocal cords. Like she just, uh, she's like my right hand terrier. Like she just knows what's going on at all times all right, we're doing falconry today or I'm flushing for bird dogs and retrieving or I'm running raccoons out of attics or I'm play fighting with my five-year-old son. Um, Mouse is that dog. So I guess, yeah, the, those four dogs, Zoid, first dachshund, Trigger, first Fisla, Kira, first setter, I personally raised. And then Mouse is the, she wasn't my first Yag. She was like the third or fourth, but the the most important if i had to pick four dogs that that's about all i can narrow it down to for favorite dogs um as far as i, I mean i could pick a few favorite dogs i've seen over the years that weren't mine uh ub guyverson's uh dog nebula is a full sibling to my gamora dog who i love a lot and is an incredible dog but that nebula dog is a very special dog nice setter and just like just like Kira is to me is to him but he's let me borrow her and I've hawked over her and I've caught caught quail over her um and then uh a, a dog that turned me or definitely turned a light bulb on about spaniels uh Chris Price I don't know if you've talked with him on here he's so. got a Springer Spaniel that he flies peregrines over on like doves and snipe um that was a dog on I saw him. I'm like, why don't more falconers have spaniels? Spaniels fit in a lot of holes. They're they're a round peg for a round hole for a lot of people. And the the cool thing about spaniels um in falconry is a lot of people get into falconry and then they change what they're doing after a few years and like I said, dogs fifteen year commitment. So if they're not willing to ever get rid of a dog or put it in a better place, a spaniel's a great dog that could be a quail hawking dog, a duck hawking dog, a rabbit dog. They do spaniels do enough of everything very well, and they're very obsessed with their their human, and they're very biddable. Um, I don't. I I would like to see more spaniel popularity. Um, I've only got one spaniel, and that's all I need. But she does a lot of jobs that are specific to her, and she does them really well. But I think falconers getting into falconry that don't have dogs. Um, a spaniel's a good safe bet to always have a job for a falconer. Um, cockers, springers. Um, so yeah, Chris Price's dog was the one that kind of showed me that. And I've got a cocker named River. Um, Hannah, who I was talking about earlier, trains spaniels for a living now. Um, Nick Yashko's got a sibling to my river dog. Great little dog and i hear a lot of people that meet her end up getting a spaniel so like it's cool um it's cool watching those like trajectories of people's dogs and what they do to other people too so it's really all i all i got on that (laughs) cool man well 
once again, we got it. We got a couple other things that we got to do before we head out and start our, you know, drives that I'm sure we're both dreading. You probably even more so than me, obviously. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I, like I said before, I, I like to end or have been liking to end these, these podcasts with getting, you know, a piece of advice or a sentiment or, um, you know, just something they'd like to pass along to, to either current or future generations of, of Falconers. And, um, you know, after that we can, we can call this good, man. Any advice, um, my best advice I could give any new Falconer or any Falconer in general is, um, ignore anyone giving you advice that you haven't seen the falconry you want to emulate from like there's a lot of falconers giving a lot of advice on a lot of things that they shouldn't be and if it's if it's not someone doing the kind of falconry you want or doing the kind of falconry you perceive as good just just tune it out and <laughs> to, don't put too much stock in their opinion i mean i mean car hawking is a huge debate and while i'll always argue that and agree that car hawking isn't like the most challenging thing in the world. It's accessible and that, so there's, there's people out there doing it and hit them up. Don't hit up the person reminding you that it's a gray area in some States. Like <laughs> just ignore them. They're not paid to be a cop. Um, the car hawking's fun. And the cool thing I've always loved about car hawking is I can load the car up with people and like they get one, they're going to keep up because we all know how well non falconers keep up in the field. <laughs> and they, they get to all see it. They see the start to finish and like that might set the hook for them and let it. And so, I mean, they're hawking starlings. It's an invasive species. Just, just cut them, cut them a little bit more slack. So just, just be very careful of who you take stock in. And like Matt wrote in one of his books that the internet is full of volume, but lack substance or something along those lines and that is a perfect description of internet falconry it's very loud but it is it doesn't have a lot of substance to it sometimes so yeah and then like your falconry is not my falconry and it might never be my falconry and my falconry may never be your falconry so just i mean at the end of the day we're here because we enjoy it and if you're not enjoying it it's not the right thing. And so do what you enjoy. Don't, don't get me wrong. Always challenge yourself, always set goals. But if you're just doing it cause it's hard and it's impressing other people, it you've missed the entire uh, essence of falconry because you can enjoy it cause it's hard, but in, do it because you enjoy it. Don't do it because it's, it gives you some, illusion of status in the the falconry tiered systems so <laughs> that's really the only advice i can give that's wholesale universal but um i guess i guess that's all we got yeah man no like i said i mean i hopefully people will get something out of our um you know catching up after like what seems like forever and uh you know some of our banter and yes and, seven uh, years yeah yeah it's been a while yeah, but, I haven't uh, seen you since I picked up Azula, and yeah. um, I flew Azula every year, and I finally gave her to Nicole Peretta, who's who now is a, a very good off stringer, but Harris Hawks are what work for her. And I was like, hey, I got a Harris Hawk that is the most turnkey, 
couldn't lose it, doesn't really care for dogs too much, could live in a giant hood silently and live a very happy life as long as she's hawked every day. And now Nicole's got her. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of things I missed about that bird. You know, I don't, like I said, I, you know, anymore, I am, um, you know, I, I, I prefer to just go ahead and, and, and start from scratch. Like you said, you know, rather than, you know, like, do anything that is even remotely secondhand anymore. But I mean, there was a lot of things that I, that I, I mean, that bird provided a lot of really amazing firsts for me too. You know, yeah. I miss, I miss some things about that bird for sure. I, that bird humbled me in a lot of ways and then became one of the most lethal Harris Hawks I've ever seen on jackrabbits. And then she, she was, was gamey. Yeah. She was incredible <laughs> on squirrels over dogs and, I flew her over Yag Terriers, Deckers, and Dachshunds on squirrels. And then I took her out to New Mexico, like turned her whole world upside down and hawked the heck out of her on jackrabbits. And she got pickier about dogs in those situations yeah. than she used to be about, than she was about squirrels. And that's when I was like, she got to the point where she would only fly over just my Vizsla. And that was, <laughs> and I, and she was providing such spectacular flights that I didn't want to tune her weight down to where she accepted dogs because it changed her her flying style well you know why it probably was it's because she flew over my vizslas <laughs> I, I didn't even think of that i never connected that dot she, I, she dude shay was the only dog she would ever fly over like yeah before I, before i transferred her to you yeah like my 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 vizsla shay i mean I she never connected that dot there i you got go. her to hunt over a lot of dogs but once she went out to the desert it she, was trigger she never she never had an issue with my with my visuals. Never. And then um and well, I don't even think I had Blitz at that time yet. But I mean, like Shay, I mean, she grew up with Shay. I hunted her with Shay. Yeah. But it was the other dog That's issues. That's so funny. Like, which which we won't mention, but <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, that was the only reason why I ever transferred her to you in the first place. But like it makes perfect sense now that you're saying that. Like I'm glad I could connect that dot for you. Possibly, yeah, just you know? like like just like a little like like a little moment of relief right there. I was yeah. like, no, I, I mean, never understood it. Cause she like my cocker, my, mm -hmm. uh, setters, my, um, my, even my yags, the same yags that she hunted over in Missouri, she wouldn't hunt over them in the desert. And it's just different, I guess. I don't, I don't know. She, I mean, like I said, man, I mean, she was always familiar. Like ever since I got her, I mean, I had her familiar with Shay and she would hunt with Shay and stuff. It was just the other, rando dogs that would pop yeah. in and out. Of, There's a uh, lot of those in New Mexico. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was my fear too. Of, yeah. Do I, do I turn the screws on her weight to get her to tolerate my other dogs? But then what, what will happen with the New Mexico, like feral chihuahuas and yeah. pit bulls? Like I'm good. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's a bad, bad combination with that bird. And then I, I eventually, instead of, I went the opposite with it. I started flying her higher and higher and I taught her to take pigeons, like sealed pigeons out of a sore. Cause we, we get really good thermals in some parts of New Mexico. And then I, I transitioned to, into just soaring her on jacks, no T-pole, no glove. And had a lot of fun and I had a really close call with her. She came out of a sore and a cottontail. She mostly catching jacks, but a cottontail had stopped and she slammed right into the ground and she was unconscious in my hands. And that, and then I, the only way to prevent cottontails from doing that is adding more dogs. And I, I that was the crossroads I had reached with her. I was like, well, I can't add more dogs because I'm going to have to cut her weight. She's going to stop soaring. Yeah. 
And uh, that's when I asked Nicole if she would take her. Her um her aggression issues with dogs never came out until after I caught those first two jackrabbits with her. And then she just started getting more and more confident. Yeah. And, and like I said, I ended up, before I transferred her to you, I mean, I had caught two jacks and like 11 or 12 cottontails, but then like she also would start catching everything. It was like possum, two feral cats, two whatever, you know, and then, and then, you know, the, um, the other issues happened and she was, she, she was like too confident. Yeah. <laughs> she, I, I mean, I even caught a couple pheasant with her. I caught, I caught ducks with her and mm -hmm. she, she caught some widgeons, she caught some mallards. And uh, I was like, well, I can duck hawk her. And then where I have ducks in New Mexico, there's, dogs, still <laughs> there's dogs. And I yeah. was like, nope. Yeah. Yeah. And th that's a liability. And I don't, I don't want some abuela coming out and beating her with a broom because it's on yeah. fluffy. Um, yeah. So that's, that's why she's with Nicole now and who flies her at a weight where she, the bird should be flown at it she doesn't need to talk nicole doesn't fly over dogs to mm -hmm. my knowledge yeah so she's in the right place now but that, it was kind of funny how like yeah that, that connected a dot i never i never knew why she would she had hunted over kira and trigger just as much and she was like no i don't want to fly over kira i'll just fly over trigger and i didn't i didn't get it but now i now i'm like wow why didn't i think of that yeah no it was totally probably her initial comfort zone man like you know literally from the day that i got her from from my sponsor who bred her you know, I mean, like she was around Shay. I mean, she was used to it, um, but, you know, she just never really took to other dogs and, you know, especially the, you know, the smaller ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, so. I always find that funny because like that's a common story in a lot of Harris, Harris Hawks. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like goshawks have that reputation. Like, well, they don't accept new dogs. And every goshawk i've had is very accepting of most new dogs whereas most harris hawks i've had like once they pick their team that's their team and then yeah. they're, they're very they're very like they'll they'll be very cool with cars and new people but like dogs they're like nope i've picked my team this is my team for the rest of my life and yeah it's it's funny that goshawk got that reputation when it's, it's harris's are Harris's deserve that reputation, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, they just have, I think goshawks have that reputation only in like a different way. I mean, like, I think at least from my experience, and I've seen a lot of goshawks fly, you know, I've never flown one myself, but I've seen a lot of them fly. I mean, it's always kind of like, you know, the, the fear, I'm going to fly away, I won't tolerate you, I'm not going to hunt worth a crap, whatever, but I'm not going to like attack you. Harris hawks, I've always seen, I'm going to attack you <laughs> yeah I, and there is goshawks that will and like i've seen those and i've flown two of those but most harris like i'm if i had to pick a bird and falconry that i've seen take to the dogs to the ground more than any other it would be harris hawks I've seen yeah for sure so many yeah. harris hawks muzzle a dog and grapple it to the ground and like yeah whereas like a lot of my goshawks that i've flown when they went Hash Brown, who loved dogs, when he was done eating his trade-off piece every single hunt his whole life, never missed one, he would bop trigger on the rear end with a foot. Wouldn't <laughs> grab him, just like just to remind him, like, yeah, this, this is, is my 10-foot yeah. circle. Mm -hmm. ne that bird never bound to a dog once in three seasons, whereas, like, 
I've seen Azula take trigger to the ground. Yeah, I was going to say bound, bound to like three different dogs in three minutes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's funny, man. But once again, before we get too off topic and start talking about a whole other thing again for another like two hours, uh, we'll go ahead and call this good, man. I mean, this has been fun. I'm glad that we can make this work and, and um, you know, glad the circumstances finally uh, provided the right, you know, uh, catalyst for you know kind of bringing this together yeah know? and i'm kind of yeah i'm glad it crossed paths when we did because it i mean we got to talk about multiple topics at once too mm-hmm. and like i mean over it wasn't over the phone yeah it, it's so um it was really good catching up and glad you got to run your dogs this weekend in the trial and glad you hope you had fun and put some names to some faces too yeah, um, yeah. there's a lot of people that were here yeah yeah no it was cool getting to meet some of these guys for the first time that i'd seen on social but like hadn't actually met in person yet and um yeah you know i mean it was cool for the for the for the dachshunds to to be introduced to you know some different stuff that they had never been introduced to before hopefully they didn't embarrass themselves too much uh <laughs> but uh but yeah man well, uh, i mean you now you know what to expect too. Yeah, you know what the yeah. events look like and can't really hold it against a dog that's never seen a raccoon in its life. No, not no. really care. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. And that's why I was just kind of like, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I go into all these things with literally zero expectation, you yeah. know. And I, it's not the real hundred percent reason why I was here. I mean, the main reason, obviously, the main motivation was making this happen, like what we're doing right now, of course. But. um and you know, but I mean, this everything else was was a bonus, you know. But uh, well, appreciate you making it happen. You definitely jumped through hoops that most humans wouldn't to make this happen. And <laughs> I appreciate you having me on here. So it was yeah. good to catch up and good to good to delve into some deeper topics within falconry with you. Yeah, yeah, awesome, man. Well, hopefully, we'll get a chance to do it uh, again some other time. That's not, you know, another like six or seven or eight years from now. You know? But <laughs> Hope, uh, no, I don't think it'll be that long. <laughs> probably not. But uh, all right, man. Well, um, we will uh, get off of here, take care of a couple things, and then get ready to head out. All right, thanks, man. All right, cool, man. <laughs>